0: Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Swanson. Today's episode features content from an educational program titled COVID-19 Science Spotlight. I'm delighted to introduce our expert faculty today. First, from Melbourne, Australia, we have Dr. Sharon Lewin. She is director of the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity and professor of infectious diseases at the University of Melbourne. We also have Dr. Arthur Kim, He's director of the Viral Hepatitis Clinic at Massachusetts General Hospital and associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, both in Boston, Massachusetts. To link to the full program online, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Lewin and Kim have to say about monoclonal antibodies in the treatment and prevention of COVID-19.
1: Thank you for that introduction, and I'm very pleased to be here with Professor Lewin, whose work I've admired for quite some time. Her work in uh, HIV, uh, in particular, and HIV cure, uh, has been groundbreaking. And like many of us in infectious disease, we've been repurposed for thinking about COVID and our COVID responses, uh, respectively. Here in the United States, here in Boston, as well as uh, in Melbourne, and Australia. So it's really a pleasure to be here with you, Sharon, and I. Wanted to ask you about sort of monoclonal antibodies, and um, they have been playing a major role in HIV these days as a potential therapy. And so it's natural for us to think about them for COVID. And so I'd ask you to comment on on sort of passive immunity and what it means.
2: Great. Thank you, Arthur, for the really kind introduction. And it's a great pleasure to be here with you. And uh, with your background in hepatitis C, I think that's also going to be uh, very relevant to the conversation about. how we manage viruses and how our approach can just be transformed overnight with major breakthrough discoveries, which we're probably still waiting for, for treatments for COVID, but we'll get back to that. So antibodies in HIV have been a great success story, Um, not yet used in clinical practice, but tremendous advances in the science and then many Clinical trials, evaluating the use of monoclonal antibodies for treatment, prevention, and also attempts at cure of HIV. But just going back a bit, I mean, I think monoclonal, for those people that don't work um, primarily in the field, monoclonal antibodies are very much an alternative to antiviral drugs. And what we've I've found fascinating in COVID is how quickly we've been able to develop antibodies compared to how slow and difficult it's been to develop direct-acting antivirals or what we would call, you know, an antibody is a direct-acting antiviral, but maybe small molecules or drugs, How you, the standard treatments we had for HIV. monoclonals are much, much quicker to develop, so it's been just fascinating seeing how quick we've been able to develop. And I think the first antibody from Lily was... Um, developed in about June of 2020 and then licensed, you know, not shortly afterwards, and that came from, of course, the NIH. And all that investment from the US in antibodies largely for HIV was just switched to develop them for COVID. So a a great lesson there that um, investment in science pays off and all of the, although we're not using antibodies actually in the clinic for HIV, all that knowledge um, switched very quickly to COVID. And as arthur mentioned many of us being repurposed were well, all the real leaders at the moment in antibody development in understanding resistance etc have largely been heroes in hiv people like david home sean newton spied um, many people from the um, nih vaccine research center so antibodies in hiv there's been a lot of interest for a very long time some of the first antibodies were pretty good First of all, I'll just explain perhaps a little bit about how you how you make or find those antibodies. And again, for the non-immunologist, so antibodies are produced by B cells. So our B cells become little factories for antibodies. And you can actually pull out uh, HIV-producing or COVID-producing antibodies from someone infected with HIV or COVID. And then you can de- get the sequence of that antibody and then manufacture it ex vivo and then make enormous amounts of it. So that technology to fish out those antibodies using flow cytometry, sequence the gene and then manufacture it was all optimised in developing HIV antibodies. And once you synthesise that antibody, You can then um, give it as a passive infusion, which means that you um, aren't making the antibody yourself, but you receive an infusion of it. And I should just add that there is some developments now in being able to actually get someone to make those antibodies so you can actually inject a gene to make someone make those antibodies. But at the moment, this is just passive infusion. And um, the first antibodies developed for HIV were not that potent. And they weren't that broad, meaning there were many strains of HIV that were resistant to the antibodies, but the antibodies have got better and better over time. And there's now some very promising studies showing that these antibodies work as antivirals and they can be long-acting. So they give us an alternative to daily antiretroviral therapy, not yet licensed. And there's also been some very big studies showing looking at these antibodies for prevention. So you give an infusion of antibodies to people at high risk of HIV, even if if they can access alternatives like prep or pre-exposure prophylaxis, oral prevention of HIV. And there was some benefits. Um, I won't go into great details. The first big study just came out earlier last year around prevention. The tricky thing with HIV is that there are, HIV is much, much, evolves much, much quicker than COVID, and so there's resistance to HIV. So that's a very long... And then finally, so there's treatment prevention. And finally, we um, you mentioned cure, so I'll just quickly speak about that. But we have been looking at antibodies as a role for cure or allowing people to safely stop antiretroviral therapy, and these antibodies boost an individual's own immune response to the virus. Now, in COVID, these antibodies were made very quickly, many of them made in academic institutions and then licensed to companies such as in Lilly or alternately made by companies such as Regeneron, and then the more recent one that came from Veer and, and largely being licensed by GSK, Satrovimab. So And again, we're looking at using these antibodies in identical situations to what we know in HIV, in treatment as well as prevention. In many ways, COVID is much easier because you just need to give a single dose because you just need to cover that period um, when there's a lot of virus replicating in the nose and the lungs and then that's over as opposed to HIV, you've got to give it continuously. I think the challenge with COVID and and perhaps um, this is an opportunity you to comment Arthur where you've had a lot more experience of course using these for treatment challenge with COVID and maybe we'll just talk about treatment for now is when to use the antibody and Again, if I just draw on my HIV experience, when new treatments come, when tri- when you have a new disease and you've got new treatments, most people, we usually ch- test those treatments when people are sickest. And um, actually that worked very well with HIV because the virus is causing problems, the virus is driving everything, whether you're well or whether you're sick. In COVID, it's quite different. And when you're sick, the action's over largely uh, for the virus. The virus has done its job and then the immune system's Picking in, and so I think the earlier evaluation of antibodies didn't show much benefit, probably because they were given too late. But maybe I'll just hand over to you because you've done a fantastic clinical thought on and, and reviewed some studies on using these antibodies for treatment. So maybe I'll um, hand over to you, and you can talk a little bit about timing and and who gets the antibody. And we're slowly refining that knowledge, which is now showing that antibodies could be quite useful but the early studies were um, not as um, successful so maybe do you want to comment on those?
1: Thanks for setting the stage and that work that, that was done in HIV quickly being translated to COVID is, is very appropriate and I think what happened early on uh, if we rewind back to March 2020 when we first had a large surge is we were mostly caught unprepared for COVID and didn't have the infrastructure for either outpatient trials where the infection control procedures and everything else that would be needed weren't in place in many jurisdictions around the world. And so inpatient, it was a bit easier to do studies. And so as you remember, the first studies were things such as remdesivir or dexamethasone that have become part of many treatment algorithms Uh, Stronger data for dexamethasone, of course, in hospitalized patients. And so antibodies were developed and tried uh, in the inpatient setting where there was infrastructure being developed for clinical trials. There, we saw really mixed data. At times, there were some signals for even harm and thus uh, many trials were suspended early on. And that began to make sense once we understood the pathogenesis of the disease. And as you were alluding to, really it's that second week when patients both come into the hospital as well as develop antibodies on their own. And there's this brief overlap period where we think antivirals such as remdesivir may work. Before then, you know, the focus shifts to dampening the immune response with medications such as dexamethasone and tocilizumab. That first paradigm of using antivirals, which uh, monoclonal antibodies would fall in, early became the paradigm. And so enthusiasm was lost for, for inpatient use. However, recovery trial in the UK, which has been an amazing, pragmatic, adaptive trial, which we could talk probably a whole podcast about, but they've contributed so much to our knowledge and Here we saw that when they kept going and they kept giving antibodies, they overall uh, found a neutral effect in hospitalized patients. However, when they stratified or divided the population into those who are seronegative, meaning haven't developed those endogenous antibodies yet, versus those who are seropositive, suddenly there was a mortality benefit compared to usual care. It was a 6% benefit, which at this stage in the epidemic, every, every bit helps. And given the sample size of 9,000 overall patients plus, you know, it, it gives the pretty strong signal. Now, the reasons why this therapy can be important, that it, it provides even more rationale that there's this brief window uh, between the outpatient as you come into the inpatient, where antivirals may work. And so it really is a proof of principle. Now, we can talk about some of the logistic issues that make it more difficult to apply immediately. They did the antibodies after the fact, so they could analyze it afterwards. If you think about implementing such a strategy in the United States, you'd have to want to know the point of care serologic status, basically have a rapid turnaround test, which not every hospital in our country clearly would be able to do. You'd have to have the drug right on hand because you wouldn't want to wait until a day or two because they might develop antibodies where then the development therapy would no longer be uh, as beneficial. And so really involves a lot of aspects. And thus far, the emergency use authorization has not yet expanded to inpatients. But it's an important proof of principle that I think is important. And I think we're going to refine the care of early hospitalized patients based on various markers, such as, you know, the viral load, uh, a surrogate being the measurement of cycle threshold from the PCR assays and the antibody status. And then we can apply the antiviral strategies, and then other markers of um, disease progression and oxygen status can help define use of immunomodulators. So that's the inpatient realm that um, we look forward to a time of more refined Uh, therapy that could be applied to patients. So, you know, one aspect about these monoclonals that I wanted to ask you about, since it's so familiar to HIV, is that the combinations that the initial one that was approved, benlanivimab, um, was rapidly combined with a second one to help prevent resistance. And I thought, given HIV and, and also with hep C, how combination therapy is important, and yet they've already graduated to a single therapy, citrovimab, which is felt to be effective on its own. And so that combination and why you need combination for certain antibodies, but why some antibodies might be standalone. I thought, Darren, maybe you could comment on that feature.
2: Well, thanks, Arthur. Resistance to antibodies, I think, it's worthwhile thinking about it a bit like resistance to um, medications or how we manage TB, that we need three drugs, or how we manage even HIV. And when a virus is replicating in the presence of a single agent, it can rapidly develop resistance, which is why we use triple therapy or now double therapy as well for HIV or TB. So that that exactly will happen with um, antibodies and COVID. COVID is an acute infection, meaning that you don't need to treat very long, and emerging resistance to an antibody can happen in some situations with COVID, but the real challenge is more around variants. So each of the variants that we have seen over this last 18 months have different susceptibility to the antibodies and that's largely related to where the antibodies are blocking spike protein all of them block spike and they block different parts of spike um, because they block entry into the target cell and as we've seen waves of different variants each of the antibodies that we've measured and there's now four different antibodies that licensed or at different stages of approval in different parts of the world have different activity against the spike protein and different activity against different variants. So the initial ones that were developed looked really good against the Wuhan strain. And then as we saw new variants come along, each of these differ a little bit. So troglomab you mentioned, which is the GSK um, antibody, binds to a part of the spike that doesn't vary as much as the other parts of the spike. And in fact, retains sensitivity against all variants. While bamlanivimab, which was one of the first that um was developed, that has reduced sensitivity, particularly to um the South African, or I always get them alpha, beta, gamma, uh, the beta strain, sorry, the, um, so it's, it, it has resistance to the beta strain. So that adds another complexity. So A, I'm not sure you have we'll have to use combination antibody. Every antibody will need to be used in combination because it's this is short-term treatment and so there's less chance for the virus to evolve. If COVID just can, if, if you were just in a laboratory, for example, and growing COVID in a test-tube model and threw on an antibody, the, COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 would be get resistant to every single antibody you challenge it with. But because treatment is a short period of time, I think there will we won't need to use dual antibodies for, for every single um, SARS-CoV-2 strain. So citrofimab so has this advantage of where it binds on the spike protein that it retains activity against uh, essentially all of the strains, including Delta. The others, uh, um, bamalimab loses it, and what with, what Regeneron did was they combined two antibodies, uh, casirivimab and indevimab together, and that overcomes this issue of either developing resistance during treatment and also capturing a larger number of strains. But you mentioned the complexity of implementation here, and it, it really is complex. Now, A, that you, you, you talked about defining who gets the best benefit from the antibodies, but B, whether they have got antibodies already, but, and maybe that can be determined quite quickly because we have quite nice point of care tests for antibodies that were developed very early on in the pandemic, you'll remember a sort of a flurry of interest in these antibodies haven't really played much role clinically, but they could play a role clinically, and then see what strain you're infected with. At the moment, we tend to see the new variants taking over, but as we're transitioning and in certain settings, there can be different variants circulating and you actually need to know the variant to know which antibody to choose. The, the issues around resistance to antibodies are slightly different here than and, and than how we think about it in the context of, of HIV.
1: Those are great thoughts, and at least um, map seems to have chosen a name that's a bit easier to pronounce than the <laughs> other ones, so it has that advantage too. Yeah, um, you're yeah, you you mentioned-
2: reading them; they, they just don't roll off the tongue. I'm not using the. Um, so I tend to struggle with the names. Um, the, the other interesting thing I could add here, um, an interesting new development, is administration. And in HIV, there's been a lot of interest in trying to make these accessible, as we have always done with all HIV prevention treatment strategies, making them accessible to in high and low in, in both low and high income countries. And so the intravenous administration of antibodies is a real, real barrier. It makes it that much more difficult, especially in the outpatient setting. But I was very interested by a new paper that's come out since your and my um, clinical thought, which was using the Regenerate, Regeneron combo, um, Casarivamab and Devamab subcutaneously. So that, you know, there, this, is, this is a fantastic advance, I hope also um, have reciprocal benefits in how we use HIV antibodies for treatment and prevention. Switching our focus a bit, perhaps we can move on to using antibodies pre- for prevention or post-exposure prophylaxis, I guess. And the first study that I um, that I covered in my um, clinical thought was using bamlanivimab in um, the setting of a nursing home Exposure. This was is, is all done pre vaccine availability and was actually led by Mike Cohen, who's a major leader in the HIV prevention space, um, having basically been responsible for discovering the role of treatment as prevention based at um, UNC. And Mike did this really interesting study of preventing COVID in, um, in a nursing home setting and basically showing that antibodies um, had a very significant role to play in preventing infection of people that were contacts of an index case. And we talked earlier about learning from other infectious diseases. We tend to do, we tend to use antibodies in post-exposure prophylaxis. We've done it for years with hepatitis A, for example. When you have um, an outbreak, and/or we also use vaccination in that setting. But you can use passive administration of antibodies. We use it in Hepatitis B or have used in hepatitis B in women who are pregnant um, with hepatitis B to protect their child. And so in this setting, um, it was used in a nursing home setting, but actually, and that was an intravenous administration, it certainly uh, reduced the chance of COVID infection uh, in secondary contacts with um, the incidence with those treated with liver. <laughs> being 8% versus 15% placebo. And so the most recent study that's just come out in the New England Journal and it's um, a different um, study group, I think, used a combination. It used it in a household setting, not in a residential nursing home. A really nice design. Yeah.
1: Household I should design. interject. Just briefly, that um, that just in the interest of full disclosure that I was a co-investigator on the, this trial that's coming up. Oh, um, fantastic!
2: Well, you must tell well, us about.
1: Yeah, I can talk a bit about it. The Regeneron compound was tested. This is again Casirivimab versus MAP, and we were funded as one of the what we call the COVID Prevention Network, which actually is part of a repurposing of the HIV Prevention Network by Mike Cohen. Wow. And so he was a major player in, in, in testing it through this network. And so we, we were um, part of the trial, not directly from Regeneron, but through that network. And you know, this trial has just been published um, as of this recording in uh, New England Journal. And basically it applied the combination therapy subcutaneously. You mentioned the advantage of subcutaneous administration it's uh, four different spots. It's so, you know, you can picture that being a, a bit of a barrier, but still much more easily applied than an intravenous therapy. And if applied within 96 hours of the positive test of the index case, uh, there was a significant benefit in preventing symptomatic COVID and as a surrogate towards likely benefit of downstream consequences. Now, these were asymptomatic people, and so some people came in and were actually PCR positive already. And so that would be an even early treatment trial as well. And so there's a preprint describing outcomes there. I think the theme, Sharon, of, of both Blaze trials, as well uh, the nursing home prevention trial, as well as the Regeneron trial, is the earlier the better. And so, you know, if People who are high risk for hospitalization or high risk for acquisition and for consequences of COVID-19, ideally, they would receive this passive immunity if they don't have strong immunity of their own. And so the earlier, the better. The the emergency use authorization in the United States allows for symptomatic COVID up to 10 days of illness. And I worry that at the outer end of that illness that we may not be doing as much as if we did it earlier. And of course we are applying that only to high risk patients. There's only uh, a limited capacity that that we can give this therapy. And so um, many times institutions had to triage, had to pick the sickest or or the ones who are most at risk for severe or critical illness or hospitalization. And at times we even had to do lotteries because there were not enough slots for the individuals getting infected. And so institution by institution, uh, there's been major issues in terms of monoclonal antibody application. And even though it's promising for prevention as well, I think at this time, we're still building out the capacity. You know, We, we barely have enough to give to the symptomatic individuals uh, for treatment. We'd love to give it more for prevention, but you could totally see how one could deploy this to say a nursing home setting where maybe someone vaccinated people. And also I'd say, you know, we were learning that. To a certain extent, vaccine neutralizing responses have been waning over time, and so us early adopters of vaccination, when we're testing now several months later, you know, some of us we don't have as much neutralizing antibody anymore. And of course, the immunocompromised and the elderly are more at risk for that phenotype. And so, you know, that passive immunity still plays a role. And you know, as a, as a B cell person, you could explain this much better. But we could give the passive immunity even to people who are vaccinated if while we're awaiting their own you know, amnestic response to return and, and give their endogenous antibodies. So at this time, we don't discriminate by seropositivity or vaccination status to apply treatments to sick individuals who are at high risk for hospitalization. So that's kind of an overview of sort of where we're at as of August 2021 here in Boston. And really, we're hoping for a future where more and more people are vaccinated and they're just fewer cases. So it's interesting to think about vaccination because all of these trials were done pre-vaccination. So Sharon, as you know, know, some people will have antibodies, some people will not. And so that's kind of the situation we're in.
2: First of all, it would be remiss of us not to mention cost (laughs) and how these, um, I think, antibodies are showing us proof of principle that a direct acting antiviral could really have a role in COVID in preventing disease progression. If you choose who to treat correctly in the hospital and you choose who to treat correctly as an outpatient, and they also have a role as post-exposure prophylaxis. But an antibody, so I think the antibodies have really shown us that very nicely. First principles as virologists, we would have expected to found, to find this. The problem is that antibodies are probably not the best vehicle for post exposure prophylaxis and early outpatient treatment because they're expensive. You know, four to $5,000 or in, an infusion is not a good, you know, primary prevention type of strategy. And uh, even in a country like the US, you're telling us about the availability where those antibodies are manufactured. And in a country like Australia, it's still a high-income country, but small population, not much COVID, we don't even have I have a confession to make <laughs> that um I haven't even used these clinically because we don't even have access to the antibodies. None of them are approved. So tribomabs just got preliminary, what they, it's under review by our FDA equivalent. And we have the government's recently purchased um some antibodies to be used in an emergency situation. So it is really proved to us about that the timing of a direct acting antiviral, which is what an antibody essentially is, and the situations that we can use them. And then I think the next phase in the future will either be making antibodies cheaper, and that, that is possible. There's been a big interest in that in the HIV world. The Gates Foundation, have, it's been a high interest for them. Easy to administer, as you just say, subcutaneous, but you know, as you just revealed that it was for separate injections or eventually we get a direct-acting antiviral drug. I mean, if we had something that was as simple as Truvada, which is an HIV prevention agent, which we use for pre-exposure prophylaxis and or post-exposure prophylaxis, then, um, you know, you can really begin to see how therapeutics may have a very big impact, which could be broad-reaching. I mean, you've had your own experience with seeing how direct-acting antivirals can just, absolutely transform a field overnight in hepatitis C. Um, And, in fact, you did tell us a little maybe you can tell us a little bit about how treatment, you know, the the treatment um, transformation, hepatitis C, and wouldn't that be great if we could reach that with
1: COVID? Yes, I think um, uh, we thought hepatitis C drug development had been lagging as we only had interferon, through the 90s, and then a pegylated form through the 2000s, and then suddenly an explosion of direct acting antivirals, which we transitioned from use with this injectable interferon to combination therapy uh, with all oral agents. And we could achieve cure, you know, which for hepatitis C is a major difference than with HIV. And so this concept, it's fascinating to think that we are rapidly working on that as well for for coronaviruses. And while you know these intravenous or subcutaneous antibodies are much well, better tolerated than interferon ever was, clearly moving towards a more deployable option, like direct acting antivirals that are oral, you could deliver it to the door of people quarantined in their homes or isolated in their homes, or um, it would be quite remarkable to uh, see that transformation. And so there are a number of Costs you mentioned with the antibodies and, you know, I think in our system, there's also opportunity costs. There were issues that infusion centers would be repurposed, but that meant sometimes that people's chemotherapies were delayed because of capacity. Now we're struggling with that. You know, we're catching up on making sure these things aren't delayed for people, you know, who really need these infusional therapies. And repurposing them for COVID, you know, delays things for them, and, and that's not ideal. And so, you know, the oral agents that um, have been tried, we could probably skip through hydroxychloroquine pretty quickly. But there are some more direct-acting agents that are promising. We hope to hear about camostat in their phase three soon, because that is a an approved agent in Japan for, uh, ironically, pancreatitis that works. As an entry inhibitor you know a a mechanism familiar to hiv Um, we're waiting for data regarding some more uh, other antivirals developed for influenza like um, monopiravir as well as uh, other compounds protease inhibitors and polymerase inhibitors and these agents you know would have that added benefit of shutting down the virus and potentially preventing transmission and risks to households and so we really view that as something Because we're fully aware that the world isn't vaccinated yet. And so we need more deployable therapies. And hopefully, these companies developing them will do their best to provide these at at low cost. I mean, we all know that there are potentially forces that that may counter that. But, you know, we're really in an urgent situation where where rapid deployment would do something for this epidemic, more so than monoclonals, which are just inaccessible to many parts. Of the world and we do have to acknowledge that we are in these high income settings and and uh, i really see these oral therapies have provided at low cost as a game changer so
2: yeah and some preliminary um, studies coming out on long new therapy look um look really you know very very promising at at what they could do one thing that you raised arthur in your um assessment of neurogeneron cocktail as treatment was what and also uh, the recovery study, and maybe you can sort of comment on it. Is there are there any risks of giving antibodies to people who have had past infection and now are coming in with reinfection, or even vaccinated individuals? I know it's probably too early to we probably I'm sure we don't have the data to tease that out. But what would be your
1: hypothesis, or what do you think? Are there any risks of it? So it's important to point out that in addition to neutralizing activities and antibodies, which um, we've alluded to that just take out the virus that's circulating, there's these non-neutralizing potential activities of antibodies, and most of which are likely positive for the immune system, things like opsonization or uh, enhancement of phagocytosis. But in the end, uh, there also are potentially uh, negative things as well. And so there was worry that certain FC receptors, for instance, could actually potentially do harm and whether or not you give it to patients who have already had their own antibodies that's that's a great question i mean i think right now our authorization doesn't require like a check of antibodies for vaccinated people before giving an anti spike antibody and it's very possible that that individual does have sustained high spike antibodies that are already neutralizing the virus and you know just logistically it's maybe difficult to turn that all around and, and then decide whether to give an antibody to someone who may have it. And so, right now, we are giving it per the uh, emergency use authorization in the zero positive study uh, patients in some of these studies. There was no particular safety signal uh, that we've heard about. Um, you'd have to dig into some supplemental tables and text to find some of these signals, but um, we did not know of some safety. Now, there are individuals in those trials who did have kind of anaphylactic or anaphylactoid reactions, which is why we do monitor individuals for an hour after infusion. You know, at at this point, that part of the authorization to monitor patients for an hour afterwards, I think is meant to uh, look for those signals. And in terms of other potential harms, thus far, we don't know of any. And, And this is part of the problem of working in a pandemic where there are emergency use authorizations and not of ability to examine all the safety in great detail. But, you know, I'm placing trust in our FDA to to look at some for some of these signals. And in the meantime, we are trying to build out capacity to give more antibody while we await um, sort of better uh, oral medications that we talked about. So great question, Jarn. It's, uh, it's interesting. Um, I'm hoping that you can, uh, through your public health measures in Australia, keep things down until you achieve uh, higher vaccination levels.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, um, we're in quite a different um, uh, situation in Australia. It may be worthwhile commenting on that, where we've used very strong public health measures, as has been done in many other Asian countries, um, Singapore, South Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan are just examples. But Australia has sustained that. And over 2020, uh, we, we kind of kept things under control with test-trace isolate. We had a period um, that was quite difficult in Victoria, which is the state where I live, Melbourne's the capital, uh, where we had a big outbreak at a time when our test-trace isolate system was not in top shape and had an outbreak of 20,000 cases and then uh, reduced that effectively to zero. So, by about October last year, we had zero new cases and have essentially been living without COVID in an unvaccinated population um, since that time across the country. And many parts of the country have essentially had no COVID. But things have changed quite significantly this year um, with Delta, which is um, a much, as you know, um, trickier variant with a much higher attack rate, and um, another great challenge of a higher viral load leading to earlier and more widespread transmission. We've been slower in rolling out our vaccines, um, largely because of availability. Uh, We've relied on local manufacture of AstraZeneca and purchasing Pfizer. And so although Australia generally has high uptake in vaccines in routine um, childhood immunisations, we do, of course, have an anti-vax movement, but it's small. Um, At the moment, we're only sitting at about 25% fully vaccinated people, expecting a lot more Pfizer to come in the next month, and that will increase. So we've effectively got Delta in an unvaccinated population and managing it with public health measures. You know, it's much more challenging than it was last year and so the whole country is going in and out of lockdown, which is probably all very foreign for you, Um, but in the US, but it that has worked and it can only really work if you go early and fast. So the approach now from the government is short, sharp, early lockdowns and, in fact, just yesterday in Canberra, which is our capital, it's a bit like, and there's a small district around a bit like washington dc called the australian capital territory they had one case and went into a lockdown um to prevent any spread and the idea is you go into a lockdown for three to five days do all your contact tracing and then open up but it's you know this is a very difficult way to live going in and out and it's very difficult for businesses our um government did a few interesting things to support lockdowns so we had a big investment in something called JobKeeper, which meant that people could still get paid. We had paid COVID leave, so if you were COVID positive, no matter if you were um, on on a, a temporary contract or even if you had no Australian residency, you got paid essentially to stay at home so these sorts of initiatives you need because you can't stop people you know going um who who rely on a job that they have to still get paid so all these sorts of um support measures have definitely helped but it is a lot harder to use public health measures alone so in the moment at the moment right now in melbourne yes we are also in a lockdown all all businesses are closed all restaurants are closed people are working at home and we have um melbourne is a city of Six million people, and we've had we have twenty cases at the moment in the country. The city's still in lockdown. It will still be like that for probably another week. And in contrast, in, in New South Wales, which where the Sydney's the capital, they've got a much larger pool of infected people now. About three hundred cases a day. We're hoping to ramp up vaccination the next time. But I guess what worries me, to be honest, is really you know most of the the rest of the world, not Australia, the US, or Europe. We're at very low vaccination rates, perhaps vaccines, many countries with vaccines that may not work so well against the variants, no opportunity for accessing these sorts of prevention strategies that we're talking about with antibodies and the Delta strain. You know, this is a really big concern for us as a
1: global community. There's um, a concern perhaps that um, if you give antibody, would that reduce the endogenous antibody formation? I, that's an interesting topic to think about for monoclonals. But thus far, you know, I think the benefit of avoiding um, hospitalization is probably kind of the goal of these therapies, and I think outweigh that potential uh, risk. But, you know, overall, I think we are underutilizing this one therapy, but that's not necessarily due to, you know, one reason it's a capacity issue. It's a, a message issue that not everyone out there is interested in therapies, and I think patients uh, also tend to kind of tough it out, hoping they will be one of those recovered. You know, which is the usual case for most individuals, and so just presenting later and later, and then the benefits of these therapies can't be applied. And so, you know, as we move in certain countries from sort of a more highly vaccinated status, you know, I think the the real answer is vaccines. I mean. You know, we just need to dampen down cases, prevent variants from emerging, uh, prevent it so there are just fewer cases to manage. And so it sounds much more manageable in your state than it does in many states here in the US. And so it's a long-winded way of saying, you know, I think um, we need our own antibodies at the point of attack. You know, that's the best way, vaccine.
2: We all know that um, a lot of great work uh, and a lot of great treatments are developed and then we face this challenge of how you really implement them and this one is really challenging the middle of a pandemic expensive complicated to administer you have to select who you give it to very carefully maybe some companion testings needed to enhance simplification around antibody detection and or viral load so this is going to become an you know a real significant implementation challenge to really start using them but that doesn't mean that we can't do that we've we've thought other treatments we thought HIV treatment was it was an implementation challenge in its day and we've now got 70 percent of the world taking antiretroviral therapy we thought that pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV is an implementation challenge and still working through that but Hopefully antibodies um, will only be the beginning of effective antiviral treatments that can be used in different situations, in the outpatient setting, in the inpatient setting to prevent disease progression. It's pre-exposure prophylaxis, it's post-exposure prophylaxis. You know, that's what I'm most optimistic about that we will We've seen incredible advances in science in the first 18 months. We'll, we'll still keep seeing those advances, but that's sort of the next frontier for me.
1: And I completely agree. I think um, my final thoughts would revolve around that implementation. And w- looking back, we really made efforts to reach out to communities that may face barriers to care, uh, ones with different, um, with lower socioeconomic indices with perhaps language barriers, lack of access to care. And we know that by uh, reaching out and enhancing access to care was critical for trying to stem the HIV epidemic in many parts of the world, such as Africa. And I think as we apply these therapies, which are costly and whatnot, much attention does need to be paid to be sure they are applied equitably and not just for those who have easy access or who are more privileged. So I think that's sort of a great direction to end here because uh, that's, the, that's the way out of this epidemic is to make it more equitable for all, both locally on a jurisdiction or national level, and then internationally.
0: Thank you so very much to Dr. Lewin and Kim for sharing that engaging discussion. And thanks to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder to view the full educational program online, click on the link in the show notes. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a wonderful day.